0: Overcoming vaccine hesitancy. Hello everybody and welcome to the conversation. I'm David Schuster. As the Delta variant of COVID-19 continues to spread across the United States, few places have been hit quite as hard as Alabama. They are now averaging about 100 deaths a day. And the data just came out that found that last year, more people died from COVID-19 in Alabama than were born. Here to talk about this and the challenges that to continue. Mayor Stephen Reed, Mayor Reed is the mayor of Montgomery, Alabama. And uh, Mayor, thanks for joining us. Uh, there's a, something like a 41% vaccine hesitancy rate um, in Alabama. How come?
1: Well, thanks for having me. You know, we have this um, low rate in part because of the uh, misinformation that has been put out there for so long that we're having a hard time trying to uh, clarify that for many people in the public. And I think it became dangerous when this issue got so politicized. Uh, that we weren't able to focus on the health of the community, as opposed to what side of the uh, debate you were on. And that has led to uh, our low vaccination rate and unfortunately has led to a uh, higher per capita uh, infection rate and that's presented a problem for us.
0: You've been in office for two years. So you've been right in the thick of things. Um, given that sort of hesitancy and the confusion, what are some of the strategies that you've seen and have worked in trying to get people to sort of overcome whatever um, worries they may have?
1: Well, what we've tried to do is enlist the uh, medical experts and those that you know truly know and are trusted by the community. Uh, in giving out uh, disseminating information. So we assembled a COVID-19 task force to help us uh, get the information out and also to try to uh, improve people's understanding of what went into the vaccination process uh, to get it to market so fast and why they need to take it. But we've also treated it like a campaign. We have gotten uh, partnerships through various organizations to help us with boots on the ground to go door to door. We work with faith leaders, we work with grassroots leaders to really try to get the information right where people are. And then we tried to do everything that we could uh, to make it very easy for people to get vaccinated by taking these clinics to football games, uh, outside churches and places where where people are gathered to make sure that if they want to get vaccinated, they can. Not everyone has access uh, to a doctor. Uh, And believe it or not, even pharmacies uh, can be intimidating to some people who just aren't familiar with this process. So we tried to take all the barriers out and we found some success in that. And oh, by the way, it hadn't heard that we've also used some incentives, whether it be gift cards as well as other monetary incentives to try to get many in our community vaccinated.
0: Yeah, and some of those incentives seem pretty crucial because I think there was just a poll that came out that found a huge number of the people who are unvaccinated don't realize that the vaccine is is free. They think it costs something, and so for people who are de- dealing with some financial difficulty, that could be an impediment. To how do you chalk up the the misinformation? Is it because of conservative news, because of um, you know the the far right media that's out there, because of the politics? What's the, what's to blame?
1: Oh, I, I don't think there's any question about that. I I, I think it it, it started. Uh, with the right wing uh, political uh, media machine really pushing that narrative. And um, those that are online pushing it as well to various social media outlets. And then unfortunately, uh, seeing uh, right wing elected officials take that as a badge of honor. And unfortunately, as they promoted, even as some of them got vaccinated, ironically enough, um, that sunk into the communities. Uh, mindset, and it has been hard to change that ever since. And then it became a, a issue of liberty, and how we got there, I, I don't know. Uh, but again, a lot of that was intentional; it was deliberate. And that's it's unfortunate because it's has cost uh, not only people their lives, but it has cost uh, our healthcare system, you know, a lot of money, millions upon millions of dollars uh, that we have still not gotten over yet. So we're still going to work at it, and we're still trying to work with those. Who are objective, But unfortunately, it has just become a line in the sand for so many because of the politicized nature of this issue.
0: I know that one of the big issues that Alabama's facing is involving a federal lawsuit Department of Justice investigation over prison conditions. And as a result, the Republican Governor Kay Ivey, she's trying to divert something like $400 million towards building new prisons that would otherwise go towards helping the
1: state with COVID-19. What do you make of that? Is that a wise move? Well, I think that, that's a move um, as it relates to prisons that we should be looking at, how do we sustain this long term? The the COVID dollars were really put in place for us to try to assist small businesses, for us to try to assist our public health uh, community, as well as education and those people that are struggling to make it day to day, whether it be the rental assistance or even other small uh, loan opportunities. For entrepreneurs. So it is uh, discouraging to see that a lot of that money may be used for um, to build prisons. I would really prefer a lot of that money be used for those prisons once they get out. And how we train them and how we reskill them with workforce development programs and reentry programs. That to me would be a much better investment as opposed to using them to build prisons. What we need to build prisons is the fact that we need to increase our revenue in our state coffers. And then we are not caught waiting on a windfall to comply with the federal guidelines. Because my question for state leaders would be this, suppose we didn't get this windfall, what would we have done? Whatever that answer is, that should have been the answer for rebuilding prisons and modernizing those prisons with mental health facilities and other healthcare in there, not using COVID dollars for those purposes.
0: Mayor Reed, one of the things that you've been very involved in uh, in your two years in office is uh, with in terms of voter participation and trying to help people understand the new voter ID laws. There are new ID laws across the country, I understand also in Alabama. Um, what, what is the key message to people when they hear about okay, there are voter ID restrictions, new laws. How do you? What's the message that you try to take to them in order to get them to be able to get past this and participate?
1: That they, they once asked people how many jelly beans were in a jar? Uh, how many bubbles of soap were there? They once asked people to uh, recite the Constitution uh, in various ways. There have always been obstacles when it came to the right to vote. And what I share with people in this community is that this is just the next layer of people who are trying to disenfranchise their opportunity to, to participate in this democracy, and they can't let that turn them around. And so what we try to do is to turn that negative into a positive and try to share with them lessons from the past. What was done and sacrifices that were made, and to make sure they understand that the right to vote is precious, it is sacred, and it is as John Lewis said, or the late John Lewis said so many uh, times, it is something that we must protect. And it's up to uh, many in our community around this country to do everything that we have to do. And let me call on uh, Senate Democrats not to be married to a rule or not to be married even really to a, a custom or something that has been a practice. That is not necessarily a procedure as it relates to the filibuster. There's no question in my mind that Democrats should do a carve out or abolish the filibuster to protect voting rights in this country. They owe it to themselves and they owe most importantly to the American people to protect the right to vote. Uh, we should not be having this discussion in 2021, and it shows the sheer level of evil that. Comes out when people will do whatever they can in order to tilt the election in in their favor. That's problematic and it's un American.
0: Uh, You know, and it's so timely too, because there are different proposals for how to deal with the voting rights. And there's some proposals that would get rid of what John Lewis proposed and sort of scale it back to what uh, uh, Senator Manchin wants. But uh, you're saying, well, regardless, whatever you sort of coalesce around, don't let the Republicans filibuster it, make a carve out for this particular legislation in order to get something passed.
1: I don't think there's any question about that. Let me say this again, speaking where the Selma Montgomery uh, voter rights march ended. uh, Speaking in this city as the mayor and former chief election official, uh, there's too much that that goes into this process. There's too much at stake for us to hope and wish and pray. We have to do more, we have to act, we have to speak and we have to do and fight for this right to vote. History has shown us when that has not been done, it's been left up. To those who are intensely trying to disenfranchise a certain group of people, they will do just that. So we should not wait for that and we should not uh, be held hostage by any so-called practice uh, that is customary when it comes to something as sacred to, to our democracy as the right to vote. We see what's been done around various states. We see what's been proposed in other states and it's up to those at the national level to make sure they don't just come to Selma and they don't just come to Montgomery to reenact the civil rights movement that they participate and they fight for the movement that we're in right now.
0: Mary, as I said, you've been in office for two years. What has surprised you, both good and, and shall we say bad uh, about being mayor of Montgomery, Alabama?
1: Well, I think the the surprises have been positive. So many people who want us to move forward. There's so many people who are uh, future um, Projecting our our next steps and what we can do and the potential that we have and there's so many people that not only are praying for us but so many people who are willing to work and volunteer their time to help make this a better city and to help make this a better community. On the downside, you know certainly COVID has been probably the biggest surprise. How long that has lingered and the impact it has had. And I certainly um, you know am thoughtful and prayerful for those who have lost family members and those that have lost their jobs. And things along those lines, but we stay optimistic throughout this, and I do believe that there'll be a brighter day very soon.
0: And I can imagine when you took office in November 2019, the idea that you would have to be having to be deal with something like a pandemic probably didn't even cross your mind. Uh, what a, what an incredible responsibility you've had the last two years.
1: Well, we have, and, and that with with other mayors around uh, the country, we've all been trying to. Uh, take some of the best practices from one another and trying to help our communities as best that we can. And we've had a lot of partners in the private sector. We've had a lot of partners in the nonprofit sector. So it's been a team approach. And I guess what it shows is that you know the metal in your community comes out when there are times of challenge like this. And certainly Montgomery has responded and so is our overall community. So that's what keeps me going. And I think that's what uh makes me proud that I'm in this seat, I'm in this position to help out. But most importantly, to lead us to a brighter future and to increase and improve opportunities for everyone that lives, works and plays here.
0: Mayor Stephen Reed is the mayor of Montgomery, Alabama. And uh, Mayor, thanks so much for doing this, we appreciate it. Thank you. You got it. the best lessons in leadership. Welcome back to The Conversation, I'm David Schuster. So I've got a book for everybody to read, Uh, particularly if you've got any employees or people who have been, say, working from home during the pandemic. You're a manager, you're trying to figure out, well, how do I get the best productivity uh, and efficiency out of them? There's a new book that is out called Let Them Lead, Unexpected Lessons in Leadership from America's Worst high school hockey team it is written by John U Bacon he's the former coach who took the Huron Michigan River Rats from worst in the nation to literally one of the best in the nation and he did it within three years no oh, by the way John U. Bacon the New York Times bestseller he's got seven books on the New York Times bestseller list he's also a former high school hockey player who never played who never scored a goal and by the way was not the choice of some of the players. To be their coach when he took
2: over, John Bacon. Welcome to the program. Good to have you on board. Thank you very much. It's a, it's a warmer welcome than I got on that team initially. So yeah, <laughs> thank you, David. So, so John,
0: given the setup, you're you're you know you're, the team is coming off an 0-22 season. You take over. You're not the coach that they wanted. Um, you've got two lessons that you give them, and that is to work hard and support your teammates. How did you get them to buy in, given what they were coming
2: off of and given who you were? Great question, and this does apply of course to the business world and elsewhere. the transferable look, when you're dealing with that kind of situation and many managers out there do, division heads and so on. You walk into a tough environment, Uh, you focus first, you're impatient with behaviors, but you're patient with results. We were 0, 22, and 3, and 22 is the losses. So I knew we are gonna lose some games that year, we had to be patient with that. But impatient with two rules, work hard, And support your teammates. And initially two thirds of the guys bought it, one third didn't basically. Once they realized that, okay, look, you got a clean slate. I'm not on you for losing all your games last year. Uh, All we have to focus on is what we send out into the world and not worry about what comes back. When you get that going for you, all of a sudden you see yourself differently. You're now defining yourself instead of letting the world do it for you. Um, And we decided to be the hardest working high school hockey team in the state. And we were that summer. So all of a sudden know preparation builds confidence and we're getting confident and that was all pretty cool by the end of the summer we were a different team.
0: And very well conditioned obviously a conditioning level that the players had never seen before so they took pride in that and yet there were still some setbacks even as the season opens you win the first three games you lose one and then you play one of the best teams in the state Trenton they beat your squad 13 to two which was a shellacking (laughs) even worse than the team had seen the year before and some of your players were, were, were sort of fed up and, and couldn't believe it. How do you and, and take us through and I love the anecdote of the book by the way on, on this particular one in terms of how you turn that shellacking into something that could, that could be positive.
2: Well, this is where I'm very empathetic with all leaders out there. Uh, you, you, you plan for a lot of things, you plan your meetings. When you suffer a setback in real time, there's very little preparation. What do you say next? And that's one of the hardest places to be as a leader. So you're right. We got our, we got crushed thirteen to two by Trenton, one of the best teams in the nation. Um, and I'll remind your viewers out there, by the way, David, this is not football. This is ice hockey. So thirteen comes <laughs> in increments of one, one, two, three, four, like that. So you see a puck in the back of your net. You see them celebrate. You hear their band play after every goal. David, I knew their fight song by the end of that night. It was that bad. <laughs> so as you described perfectly, the guys go to the locker room, They're throwing their gloves, throwing their sticks. Like you said, they said. We weren't this bad last year. Our first three wins were fools' gold basically. And I said, hey, stop. First thing I said is I saw what you saw. That's where we are. They're kind of surprised. I was not going to try to you know, put lipstick on a pig as we say, and make it sound better than it was. No, that, the, bad, the game was bad. That's where we are. That's where they are. But that's not what matters. What does matter are our two values. What are our two values? And at first they mumble, work hard, support your teammates, and no. I start, you know, shouting that back and forth. I start shouting it back and forth, and then I say, "Hey, did you do those two things?" And they think about it, and then they realize, "Actually, we did. We did work hard the entire game. No shifts off. Never coasting to the bench, even at the end. And we never blamed anybody for the goals against. only the two goals for, we support each other. We did do it. But that's right. Those are the only two things you have to worry about. We control those two things. You don't control the world. We control our behaviors. And if we can do that tonight," That is heroic, and it will always be easier than it was tonight. So I'm proud of you. Well, out of here with your head held high. And don't forget, we play those guys again, and it's not going to be 13 to 2. And the next time it's 7 to 1, then 6 to 2. And a year and a half later, at the end of our second year, now we've got 16 wins. We lost to them at Trenton 3 to 2, close game, even shots. Their parents gave my guys a standard ovation. We were a different team. Now,
0: I think it was your true youth, your 3 I can't member, but in the book, there's another anecdote about the chair. And, that, and I love this one because this is, you know, all of us have had colleagues who have messed up and they cost the rest of the team and they do stupid things. And when you were coaching the river rats, rather than essentially make the person who made the mistake pay, uh, you sat them in a chair and made everybody else do sprints uh, on the ice. Explain what was sort of going behind on behind that, and what what the lesson was in in this particular anecdote.
2: Sure, I mean every field of endeavor has got you know you want to get high sales, but not have lawsuits, for example, or complaints from customers. You always have a balancing act between what you're trying to accomplish and avoiding a third rail, for example, you know good surgical outcomes and no malpractice. That's what you want. So in this case, in ice hockey, a little simpler deal. Uh, we want to be aggressive, we want to be tough, but we don't want to have penalties against us. Those things can kill you. So when we took too many penalties after one game, I was getting tired of it. So I put a chair at center ice, came out of the ice in my skates with the score sheet, and I announced you know, number seven, Chris Kwan, two minutes hooking. And he goes out there and sits in the chair. And then everyone else, including the coaches, skated the entire way down the ice and the entire way back as hard as we could. And then the first guy gets out of the chair, and the next penalty, number 17, Danny Sheldon, two minutes slashing, whatever. And we keep doing this, and we had to do it 15 times. We had way too many penalties. By the time you're done, I don't have to say anything, because now you realize you are accountable to each other. When you take too many penalties, you're not screwing the other team over. You're not screwing me over. You're screwing your teammates over. And that is a feeling that nobody wants. People respond to that a lot more strongly than they respond to letting themselves down or letting a boss down. So you try to set up systems where everybody's accountable to everyone, everyone else. After I did that, I did it once or twice a year. We never had more than three penalties the next game, and we always won, so they got the message.
0: John, in one of your other books, you talk about um, you know a story with Bo Schembechler, the late Michigan coach, and he was asked by one of his players, "What kind of team are we going to have?" And he says, "You know, you ask me in 15, 15 or twenty years, and I'll tell you, uh, based on what sort of men these are." Um, take that forward in terms of these you know Huron high school hockey players. What are they doing now, and, and how cohesive is the group even years later?
2: And of course, I love that quote, as you know, because focus was not simply on Big Ten titles and victories. It was on the kind of men we're shaping here. And Carol Hutchins, the great softball coach at Michigan. One of her players said, I came here a girl without much confidence and I leave here a woman who thinks she can do anything. And that was her goal at Michigan softball, same idea. So our goal is the same. It's to create a program that you can't forget the rest of your life. that you draw on the lessons and the energy and the confidence the rest of your life. And I want to stay in touch. So every summer for now 17 summers, we've had them back in our backyard for barbecue I pay for. And they come back with their wives and their kids. And David, their kids are older than mine, who is (laughs) six. So they give me parenting advice, and I have to take it, David. So that's how that one works. Uh, But your point, your bigger point certainly applies here. Of 54 former players I had, more than 40 are in leadership roles of some sort. Now, one's a higher up at the Department of Homeland Security, a lawyer there. One is the vice president of Insight Global, a $2.5 billion company in Atlanta. One is a higher up with Uber Freight in Chicago. And it goes on like this. Uh, we got a couple doctors in there, anesthesiology and so on. And I'm pleased to say that when I asked him for help on this book, I said, look, you guys are now in your mid-30s, the age I was when I coached them. Uh, what'd you take out of it? What do you remember? What mattered to you? And they sent me back 150 pages of stories and insights and ideas which I baked into the book. Which makes it a very rare leadership book because usually you never hear from the people you're trying to lead. So their insights here are fantastic. And I'm pleased to say they've applied these lessons to the real world and they work. And one of
0: the lessons, of course, is there are a lot of people who think, oh, if you're going to lead younger people this day and age, well, you, you, you can't make it my way or the highway. You got to sort of coach to them in terms of let them get away with things. And, and one of the things that sticks out about your book is that no younger people, even today, are looking for discipline. They're looking for process. They're looking to have the boundaries drawn for them.
2: Exactly right. Uh, the advice I got there was from Al Clark of Culver Academies, Culver Military Academy, for the boys. He is the winningest high school hockey coach of all time. I coached for him years ago. Amazing guy. I bet a cap up math department chairman, not a yeller or a screamer. But he told me when I took the job what you have to do at Huron is make it special to play for Huron here in Ann Arbor. And the way to make it special is to make it hard. That's the exact opposite advice that everybody is telling me about millennials and now Generation Z. And he's right. And you think about it, you know, why Navy SEALs? Except 6%, they pay $54,000. And their wait list is gigantic, because it's hard. It attracts the right people, Peace Corps, same thing, law school for that matter. Anything hard, the harder your admissions, the more applications you're going to get, that's how it works. So we did that right away, we're on the track, we're in the weight room, uh, all summer and all fall, and not one player quick. And these were not Navy SEAL candidates, these are the players from the worst team in America, 0, 22, and 3. So we guessed completely wrong about this generation, as you said, they want discipline, they want direction, they want to be challenged, Uh, they want a sense of purpose and belonging. They're very big on that, not just a paycheck. Why am I doing this? It has to matter on some big, bigger global level. And last but not least, let them lead, that's the title of the book. The more control you give them, here are my high standards. Once you're sure you can meet them, I start giving you control of the team. And finally, our third year, I let them coach an entire game and they won six to nothing me not saying a word the entire night.
0: John Bacon, the uh, the book is Let Them Lead Unexpected Lessons in Leadership from America's Worst High School Hockey Team. John has also written bestsellers including Fourth and Long, The Fight for the Soul of College Football. I'm holding that up right here and Overtime. Jim Harbaugh on the Michigan Wolverines at the crossroads of college football. Bacon, I've got all your books on these bookshelves behind me, including a Bo's Lasting Lessons. Uh, folks, if you wanna do a friend or a family member a favor, buy them any one of John Bacon's books. Trust me, they will be forever
2: grateful. John Bacon, thanks for joining us, my friend. Take care. Thank you. The website is LetThemLeadbyBacon.com with a podcast. And Dan Shaughnessy of the Boston Globe called it Ted Lasso Meets Mighty Duck. There you go.
0: And someday it's gonna be a Hollywood movie and we'll just have to guess in terms of who's gonna play John Bacon in the movie. Uh, John, thanks so much on behalf of (laughs) Asher Cofield and the
2: entire team at the Young Turks. I'm David Schuster.